Uh, we, we talked last week about asking and receiving from God, getting things from God. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about how prayer changes the one who prays. So I would really encourage you to be back. Service starts at 6 o'clock. Teenagers, you have an activity after church. And so um, um, it is the new age way of thinking. When I was a teenager, we'd have ice creams, and it would be like the least healthy ice cream possible. The goal tonight with the snack is who can make the healthiest ice cream possible. Is Miss Rachel in here? I bet, Ms. I bet this was Miss Rachel's idea. She's like a health nut. So um, uh, maybe I need to come up and, and test that out and see who's actually as healthy and tastes good. I don't know if that's possible. Is it possible to make something healthy that tastes good? No, it's not. All right. <laughs> Romans 4 in your Bible this morning. Romans chapter 4. Hey, begin to mark your calendar for our missions conference. It's going to be awesome. We have three missionaries that we currently support that's going to be here. And then I have had my eye on a missionary uh, from the country of Peru for quite some time. I've been getting his uh, newsletters, his updates. I knew him in college um, and was one of the um, most spiritual guys I knew in college. Not only did he produce strong in his ministry work, but... He had a real walk with God, and I got to watch him up close and personal. And uh, he and his wife have been in Peru now for five years. They've only been back to the States once in five years. That tells you uh, how committed they are. Started a church from scratch, and the church is up and growing and doing well, baptizing people regularly. And uh, the Raider family, his last name is Raider, they're going to be here with us for the missions conference. We're going to consider taking them on for support uh, through the conference. And excited to have them here. Uh, with us, and so uh, Mark and Sarah Rader, they have four children. They're going to be bringing their little one-year-old baby, so that'll be adorable to get to see them. Uh, Mark, your calendar's plan on being here. That's March 18th through the 21st. Uh, the One of the nights, I believe it's Monday night, we're going to have an international dinner. My wife has asked me to ask you that if you have international clothes that you dress up and wear those. So begin to plan for that now. We'll have a good time. I love international dinners at White Oak Baptist Church. I've been international dinners at all kinds of other churches. This place, you guys know how to do it. So uh, if you uh, want to know what the food of the world tastes like, be here and uh, you'll enjoy that. And then the Wednesday evening, we will um, have international ice cream. So we'll put toppings on our ice cream and that won't be healthy. Amen. All right. Romans chapter four. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm for being healthy. I'm just being silly this morning. Romans 4, and we're going to look at the last two verses to get us going, and then we'll be in Romans 4 and 5 for the message this morning. Let's read verses 24 and 25 uh, out loud together for our reading this morning. Ready? Verse 24, together. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses... And was raised again for our justification. We were looking at uh, the topic of salvation the month of February. And this uh, uh, last week we looked at reconciliation. This morning we're going to look at justification. And the title of the sermon is Making Peace with God. Let's pray. I ask this morning, Lord, that you would give us clarity of mind and an understanding heart. And Lord, that... Um, those that are saved, they'd have a better understanding of their salvation. Lord, if there's somebody here that does not know for certain that heaven is their final 
eternal destination, may they get that settled today. May they understand the gospel. Holy Spirit, would you convict their heart on a deep level to where they will be ready to receive. Receive salvation, ready to receive the gift of eternal life. So, help us today, Lord, and print these truths on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 2018, we've begun a journey to help us better understand the teachings of the Bible. In January, we spent the entire month looking closely at the authority of the Bible. Um, won't rehash that. We've done that uh, the last several weeks. But um, if you don't know why the Bible is true and you don't know why we use the King James Version of the Bible and you're, you weren't here for those sermons or maybe you weren't paying attention while I was preaching, shame on you. Amen. Um, uh, you can go online on YouTube or on our church webpage and you can listen through those and better understand why the Bible is accurate, why it is true, why it is God's message to man in its purest form. The month of February, we're taking a close look at what the Bible teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That word gospel simply means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. And last week we focused on that word reconciliation. Now that's a big word. That's an expensive sounding church uh, Bible word. But we broke it down and we made it very understandable. Uh, at least we made that attempt. And I'm not going to rehash that this morning. I would encourage you to go and listen to that. You can order it through our bookstore. Again, go online and listen to that sermon if you weren't here for it. Uh, can you do me a favor? Turn over to Job chapter 1. We're going to j- jump into this idea of justification. Justification, again, a large word, a multi-syllable word, not a word that we use all the time. Reconciliation, last week we said was a financial term. This week we're looking at justification, which is a court term. It is a, uh, a term that would fit inside the confines of maybe a law degree. Uh, we do use the word justify regularly in some of our speech. You can say uh, something like, well, I justified buying that like this, or I justified doing that uh, because of this. And uh, uh, we call that sometimes situational ethics, but a lot of times people think that they can justify their eternality with God based on their good behavior. They believe that somehow God's going to let them off the hook and allow them access to heaven because they are a good person. Now, if I were to stop, and by the way, I've done this lots and lots of times. I've lived in Connecticut now uh, 19 months this stint, lived here nine months prior to that. Uh, so almost uh, three years I've lived in the state of Connecticut, and I have asked a lot of people on the street this question. What do you think it takes for a person to get into heaven? What do you think it takes for a person to get into heaven? And I've got to say that I've asked that question a lot, and I've gotten very, very similar answers from the majority of people. Here is basically the answer, some form of this. Well, I've lived a pretty good life. I think that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and that God hopefully would let me in. Now, notice that there isn't a lot of certainty in that answer. There is a hope so, not a no so. Another common answer I get is, well, I've done my best to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, if you want to be facetious, you get that answer from somebody, you know what you do? You look at them and say, can you name for me the Ten Commandments? I don't know that I've ever had anybody actually get all ten of them. And then I look back at them and I say, if you don't even know what they are, how do you know if you're keeping them? 
how do you know that you're keeping them? Um, today, I'm going to prove to you from Scripture, through some stories, that you cannot earn your way to heaven by your good behavior. I'm going to prove it to you. And I'm going to show you that you cannot justify in court with God that somehow He should just give you access to heaven because your good potentially could outweigh your bad. Um, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you more righteous than Job? Are you more righteous than Job? Have you lived a life that is more upright and uh, uh, full of integrity than Job? You say, I don't even know who Job is. Well, let me show you. Look at Job chapter 1 and verse number 8. It says there, And the Lord said unto Satan, so God's having a conversation with Satan here, the curtain has sort of been pulled back and we begin access to God, uh, God's meeting with Satan here. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? Look at, look at the description here. A perfect and an upright man. By the way, that word perfect does not mean Job was without sin. It means that Job was mature. A perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth or hateth evil. Job was not only the wealthiest man of his day, but he was also the most godly of his day. It is quite possible that Job was one of the most godly men to ever walk the planet. Job was farther along than probably anybody in this room today, maybe anybody alive today. Um, now, Job would face a barrage of, of trials and uh, he would be hit over the head hard with losing all of his wealth in one day and all ten of his children would die at once. Now imagine if your bank account went from whatever it is, zero. You lost your house. A tree fell on your car. And your kids died all in about a two-hour window. You know, what's in the inside of the glass would, would come pouring out. And i got to say that uh, that'd be tough. Look at, look at Job chapter 1, verse 19. We get the end of the trial, and then we get Job's response. And behold, they came, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men. These are his children. And they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. How's Job going to respond when he loses all of his wealth and he loses all of his children in a very short time frame? Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Wow. He worshipped. Verse 21. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So here you have Job. He has been shaken to the core. He's lost everything he's had that's precious to him. And his response, his natural reaction is to shave his head, which was a sign of mourning in their culture. It was to uh, uh, change his clothing to that of mourning. It was to throw himself down prostrate before God and worship God and then make this statement, I came into the world naked, I'm going to leave the world naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you so pious as to say that if that happened to you, you would respond the same way? Because I'm not. I would like to think I'd respond that way, but I don't know that I would. 
I don't know that I would. However, Job's trials weren't finished. Um, Satan would go back to Jesus, and, or, or God in heaven, and God would say to Satan, he'd say, repeat the same thing. Have you noticed my servant Job? He's perfect and upright. He fears God and eschews evil, hates evil. And uh, Satan basically says, well, that's because you won't let me touch his personal health. If you'll let me touch his personal health, then he'll curse you. And God says, go ahead, just don't kill him. And so Satan reaches into his bag of tricks and he pulls out the most painful disease that he can give Job, short-term disease he can give Job. And Job is covered with boils from head to toe. He's laying in the city dump. He's got a piece of broken pottery. He's scraping the pus out of his boils. And his wife comes up to him and says, Job, I'm leaving you. Curse God and die. Turns around and leaves. Now, I can handle a whole lot, but if my wife were to turn her back on me and leave me, boy, that might just be the breaking point. But not for Job. Now, Job's friends, and I say uh, friends loosely, um, his acquaintances, they came and they began to judge him. First thing they did is they came and they sat there. I think the Bible says for three days. They didn't say a word. Not, it's going to be okay. Not, everything's going to be all right. Not, hang in there, old buddy. Just dead silence for three days. Boy, that's depressing. Then after three days, one of them finally works up the muster to speak. And he begins to judge Job. God is punishing you because you are a hypocrite. You are living a double life, Job. And uh, Job is forced to defend himself. But in Job's defending of himself, look what he says. Turn over to Job chapter 9 and verse number 20. Now again, if you give an answer that God's somehow going to let you into heaven because of your good behavior then what you're doing is you are justifying the actions of your life, the sins of your life before God, and you're pleading to God in court. You're saying, uh, you should let me in based on the merit of me. And again, I ask you this question, are you better than Job? Because Job would not even plead his good behavior. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. Job speaking here, If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say... I am perfect, or without sin in this instance, it also shall prove me perverse. Deep down inside of the heart of any man or woman who believes that somehow they are worthy of eternal life because of their behavior, deep down inside, if you begin to pull away the layers of lies, the layers of uh, 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 false humiliation, what you find is a bed of pride, a bed of conceit, that somehow they are self-righteous enough for God to let them into heaven. You may not come out and say, I'm, I'm good enough, or uh, I'm worthy of heaven, or somehow that uh, I'm, I'm awesome enough for God to let me in, but deep down inside the heart of anybody that thinks they can earn their way to heaven through their good behavior, there is a set of lies of self-righteousness. When we're little kids, we will brag on ourselves. I've got two small children in the house, and I have watched them go from bragging on themselves outright, especially my son, I think he must get this from his mother, because I would never do this. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, but I've watched him say, man, I am awesome, yeah. 
And I, I turn in the Bible to the verse in Proverbs that says, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own lips. And I chided him and said, You are not to brag on yourself. You're to let others do that. And so now we're at a place where Matthew will fish for that compliment. Hey, Dad, you see that? What'd you think? He's getting me to praise him. And you know, the older we get, the better we get at that. We get more subtle at it, more careful at it. A husband will wash the dishes for his wife, and he's waiting for that compliment, and it just doesn't come. And finally, he'll look at his wife and say, hey, honey, wash the dishes. And she'll say, good job, I do it all the time. Fishing for that compliment. Fishing for that compliment. By the way, ladies, hand that compliment out. Don't make him fish for it, all right? What was Job saying here in Job 9, verse 20? He was saying, if I were to say that my righteousness justifies me before God, he was saying my mouth would be lying about how wicked I really am. He said, I, I, can, I can focus on the good of my life, but that does not erase all of the evil that has existed in my life. Not only was he saying that my mouth would be lying about how wicked I really am. Look back at verse 20. If I justify myself, my own mouth, my own mouth shall condemn me. Specifically, he was saying, my mouth itself is condemned. The evil that I have spoken, the idle words that I have uttered, and the Bible says that we're going to give an account to God one day for every idle word that has been spoken. All of the frivolous talk, all of the talk that really doesn't amount to anything, all of the talk that only isn't negative but doesn't edify, we're going to give account to God one day for our mouth what we've said. And Job said that my mouth itself would condemn me if I tried to justify my life uh, before God in order to plead my case that He should somehow let me into heaven. He was saying my claim to self-justification would by itself condemn me. The statement itself would contain its own condemnation. Now, if you're under the sound of my voice and you believe yourself good enough to get into heaven, then you are greatly mistaken at just how wicked and sinful you really are. And that's not just you. That's every human being that has walked this earth, that is walking this earth, and that will walk this earth. I believe this morning that if Job and all other biblical patriarchs and matriarchs cannot be justified by their works, then neither can you. The Bible says we're justified by faith. We are set free from our sin by the punishment of Christ on the cross. In our place, we are given a relationship of peace with a God who is wrathful, hates our sin, wrathful toward our sin, because Christ has endured and suffered that wrath for us. Let's look at five powerful truths around this topic of justification Making peace with God. On the back of your bulletin, there's a spot to take notes. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, number one, notice here the price of sin. The price of sin. Back in the book of Romans, where we were to be in Romans chapter 4 is where we started. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. The Bible says there, by the way, Christian, if you know you're saved today, don't tune me out. I hope that through the message today, you'll better understand your own salvation. All right? Um, before we read the verse, I'll just say this. To get saved, 
you, you don't need to know very much. You get saved, you just have to have faith. Right? Um, you got Mike Varro over here is a master electrician. And I am a no-knowledge electrician. If you put me in a room with wires, I'm going to kill myself. All right? Um, do you know that I'm just as capable of turning on the light as he is? All I have to know is how to flip the switch. You get saved, all you have to know is that if you believe, you'll be saved. But, there is a science to getting that light switch working. To get saved, you just have to know how to believe. But, what's the science behind all that? If you're here today and you are saved, you've put your faith in Christ, that doesn't mean you know all the science behind it. You need to learn that so that your faith is stronger. And so that you're capable of explaining the gospel to everyone around you. You might have a co-worker that sees that your life is different and they want to know how you got what you have. And you go, ah, 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 I don't know. If you're there, look, just invite them to church. Get them here on a Sunday morning and I'll give them the gospel. But uh, you need to be able to say, hey, listen, let me show you from God's word how you can be justified, have your sins forgiven, and how you can do that by faith. So sit up straight and tall, take notes, listen, and uh, be ready to give an answer to any man that asks of you. All right, the price of sin. Look at verse number 12 there. It says, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. In this verse, we learn the origin of sin. It came from one man. Who was that one man? Speak to me here. It was Adam. Adam, the father of all living, Eve, the mother of all living, there in the Garden of Eden, God puts the tree there and he says, don't eat the tree. And people have asked me, well, why would God put the tree there? He put the tree there so that they would not be robotic. They would not just obey him out of instinct, they would obey him out of choice. And so every day Adam and Eve got up, they walked past the tree, they chose not to eat it. They were choosing God in a relationship with God over disobedience to God and eating the tree. One day Satan slithers up to Eve after having been thrown out of heaven. Satan, the enemy of God, hates God, wants to get uh, uh, the creation of God that God takes pleasure in, wants to get him away from God, wants to pull him and break that relationship with God. And so uh, uh, Satan waits till uh, Adam isn't around and he slithers up to Eve and he plays on Eve's weakness. What was Eve's weakness is that she was strong emotionally, weak logically. And so he says to her, thou shalt not surely die. Look at it. Doesn't it look delicious? She picks the fruit, she bites it. She falls into sin. She goes to Adam, and now Satan is going to play on Adam's weakness. You see, while Eve and all women are a little bit weaker logically than men are, men are weaker emotionally than women are. And so Adam looks at his beautiful wife, and he sees that she's eating the fruit. She, he sees that she's going to be thrown out of the garden and punished. And he says, I choose to love my wife more than my God. I'm going to eat the fruit with her so I can suffer condemnation with her. And Adam tainted all of mankind, because Adam chose to eat that fruit. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, I've never met anyone who's sinless. Have you? You ever met anybody that hadn't told a lie? Never told a lie. Raise your hand. I don't see any hands. Oh, Marcy is scratching her head. Or Marcy's scratching her head. Marcy, you just lied about not lying. All right. All have sinned. Why? 
Do you know that there's this belief out there that we're born uh, uh, perfect and then the world contaminates us? That's just not true. You're born with a sin nature. You got that from your great, 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 grandpa, Adam. All right. You know that if you listen to what I'm saying today and you think about it, you know, that rings true in your heart. Everybody's a sinner because we get that from Adam. Now, uh, what is sin? What is sin? It's a politically incorrect term in the day and age which we live, but it is biblically correct. And sin is a transgression against God. Look down at verse 14 of Romans 5. Two verses down. Uh, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, uh, even over them that uh, had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So Adam's eating the fruit was a transgression. What does the word transgression mean? Well, transgression means to trespass against God. How many of you have ever seen a no trespassing sign? Obviously, we all have. Uh, We were out knocking doors a a few weeks back on a Wednesday. Brother Verone was my partner. And we walked up on the porch and there was a sign in the window. It said, no trespassing. It said, violators will be shot. Then it said, survivors will be shot again. We turned around and left. We didn't knock on the door. (laughs) Um, Trespassing. That's going morally where God says not to go. What did Adam do? He trespassed against God. God said, here's a tree. Morally, don't cross the boundary. Adam crossed the boundary. He trespassed on moral ground he didn't belong on. He transgressed against God through his trespass. And that is what sin is. Anytime that we commit sin, we are transgressing against a holy God. What were the consequences of that transgression? Well, these won't be on the screen, but I encourage you to write them down. The first one was condemnation. Look down at Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, speaking of Adam, judgment came upon men to condemnation. Condemnation. Adam chose to hurl the entire human race into condemnation. So uh, you're born a child of Adam. You're born under the curse of condemnation. If uh, if someone were in court and uh, they were condemned or they were found uh, to be in a state of condemnation, that means that they are guilty and that a sentencing is coming their way. Uh, You're not born inherently good and then cross over into condemnation. You're born into condemnation. John chapter 3 verse 18 says this, He that believeth on him, Jesus, is not condemned. But he that believeth not, we're all born in a state believing not, is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We are born condemned. Uh, Adam chose to cast the entire human race into a classification called enemies of God. Enemies of God. You were born, verse 10 tells us, an enemy of God. What else is the price of sin? Well, we see that uh, transgressing the law, transgressing against God, brings us condemnation. But secondly, it brings us eternal death. Eternal death. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Listen very carefully. It says, but the fearful and unbelieving. By the way, that's really what sends a person to hell is not believing on, on Jesus. Then it says this, the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters. It's a pretty rough crowd. You say, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a whoremonger. I'm not an idolater. Okay, how about this one? And all liars. How many murders you got to commit to be a murderer? One. How many lies you got to tell to be labeled a liar? 
I think I'm standing in a room full of liars. Am I not? We've all told at least one lie. Most of us have told thousands of lies in our lives. What is the punishment for these people? Listen to the rest of the verse. It says, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. What place is a lake that burns with fire and brimstone? That's hell. And then notice this last phrase of the verse, which is the second death. You see, Adam did not just earn death for his body. Adam, through his sin, chose to cast the entire human race under the condemnation of eternal hell. You can't be good enough to get to heaven because you have been condemned through Adam's sin that has been passed down to you. The death that Adam has earned us extends well past the grave. It extends into eternal damnation. Number one, we see the price of sin. Number two, notice here the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. Now, I hope that uh, this point here will be less elementary uh, for those that have been going to church for a while. And maybe you'll learn something new under this point. Look at verse number 13 of Romans chapter 5 there. It says there, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, um, there are those that believe, please follow the logic here. There are those that believe that because they somehow keep the commandments or keep most of the commandments most of the time, that they are going to earn heaven through that. Let me just say to you that uh, breaking the law is not what sends you to hell. People died and went to hell before the law was ever written down on earth. You hearing me here? Verse 13 talks about how death reigned from Adam to Moses. Who, who did God give the law to pin on earth? Gave it to Moses. You know, there was really no written law to have to try to abide by until Moses came along and on Mount Sinai was given the Ten Commandments. So... If, if death came before the law, then keeping the law is not going to get you out of death. This idea that somehow I can, I can live my life by a certain Judeo-Christian structure and God's somehow going to let me off the hook. What about the people that didn't have uh, the Judeo structure, the, the law to try to follow? You see, from Adam to Moses, there was no law, but there was death. Why? Because breaking the law does not bring death. Sin brings death. The law was given to us to show us just how wicked we really are. Flip over to Galatians chapter 3, if you would. Romans is there uh, to your right. Uh, you have uh, Romans. I believe the next book is Galatians. Is that right? Galatians, Ephesians. Yep, Galatians is the next book to your right. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Turn over there for me, if you would. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, then Galatians. My, my mistake. All right. I'm a pastor, I ought to know that. Shame on me. Galatians chapter 3, look at verse number 24. We see here the purpose of the law. Now, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Romans three, uh, Galatians 3 verse 24 says, I'll begin reading and catch up if you're not there. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Why? That we might be justified by faith. Now, remember that. Justified by faith. We're going to talk about that more in detail in just a minute. But what is the purpose of the law? It's to school us. To school us. It's to show us how unworthy we are of salvation. Um, 
If I go out on a basketball court and I beat somebody really bad, I would say, I just schooled you. Right? That might be 90s terminology. I don't know if the kids are saying that anymore. But that's what they said when I was a kid. All right? I just schooled you. You know what the law does for me? It schools me. It shows me how filthy and wicked I am. Here's where false religions thrive. By the way, here's where the Catholic Church thrives. Okay? We look around at others... And we say, I do a better job of keeping the law than that guy. So because I do a better job keeping the law than that guy, God is going to let me into heaven. My friend, the law was not given for you to compare yourself to other sinners. The law was given for you to compare your wicked soul up against how short you fall to the level of standard of perfection. You cannot get into heaven by keeping the law unless you never, ever, 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 ever break it. That will never happen because you have a sin nature and you can't help but break it. Where does false religions, where does false religions go off the track? It goes off the track by somehow dictating to you that if you keep the law in some way and do a better job of it than most, that somehow God's going to look away from your sin and let you in. And my friend, that's not how it works. You see, the law was given simply for the purpose of showing us how wicked and rotten and horrible we are in our base state. Number three, we see here the permanence of grace. Number three, number three, the permanence of grace. So, God gave us the law, right? It wasn't around prior to Moses. And there will be a day where the law is no longer needed. God will take away the desire to sin. God will remove our our sin from us. He'll give us an eternal home in heaven. The law will no longer be needed. The law is a temporary uh, uh, thing that's just here to show us how wicked and short we fall. It's also given to help govern us and help us to live lives that are inside of it and and, and to teach us uh, 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 what joy and happiness uh, uh, comes from by obeying it. But grace, while the law is temporary, grace is permanent. You see, grace is around before the law. Grace will be around after the law. Look back at Romans chapter 4, verse number 1. Romans chapter 4, verse number 1. And everything we do today will be out of, uh, uh, come back to the book of Romans in chapters 4 or 5. So make sure if we turn away from there, you mark your spot and come back to it. Look at verse number 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory. But not before God. For what saith the scripture? Look at this. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, Abraham lived before God, gave the law to Moses. But Abraham never lived outside of God's grace. You see this? How was... How was Abraham saved? How was Abraham given a home in heaven? Was it because he was such an awesome Christian, awesome person? No. God did not look at the body of the work of his life and say, you've been good enough for me to let you in. Verse 3 there says that he was given that righteousness because of his faith. Because of his faith. Rather, verse 2. He was given it by his faith. Earlier I asked you, are you better than Job? You might say, ah, I might be on his level. Are you going to go as far as to say that you're better than Abraham? 
Abraham's works didn't get him into heaven. Why should God let your works get you into heaven? God's grace is permanent, and that's the point I want to make here. God's grace was around before the law. God's grace was there during the law. And God's grace is, is even stronger now that we're, uh, uh, Jesus has come to earth and brought the dispensation or that period of time of grace. And by the way, once we have been redeemed, uh, uh, fully sanctified, we'll get into that another week, and we've been given our home in heaven, and we live in the presence of God, we will for eternity dwell inside of the grace of God. God's grace is eternal. It is permanent. Number four, we see the process of justification. Now, this will be the thrust of the sermon today. So please, please uh, sit up straight and take note of what's going to be said here. Look back at verse number one of Romans chapter five. I'm going to make um, a strong application for those who have not put their faith in Jesus. Then I'm going to make a strong application for those that have. Look at verse number one. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, by faith. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at here, notice letter A, the facts. The facts. We are justified by faith. Now, that word justification is probably still a little hairy to you from a theological standpoint at this point in the sermon. But I hope that by the time I'm done with letter A here, it will be crystal clear as to what that means. All right? Um, I'm going to... Set the stage here by putting you inside of God's courtroom. I want you to imagine that you are in God's courtroom. God, who is sinless and perfect, is the judge, and you are on trial. Alright? Satan is the uh, prosecuting attorney. And Jesus, if you allow him, will be your defense attorney. You got the stage set here? God's up on the... On, on the um, uh, stand there. He is the judge and he is the jury. All right. He's perfect. He can make, be the judge and the jury. Uh, uh, Satan is the prosecuting attorney, the advocate. And Jesus, if you allow him to represent you, will represent you. But it doesn't start out that way. Now. Notice here, I believe these would be up on the screen. Notice here first, there must be for you to be justified. There must be an admission of guilt. An admission of guilt. Look at verse number 6 of Romans chapter 5. For, we were, for when we were yet without strength, by the way, sin steals your strength, in due time Christ died for the, can we say that next word out loud together? Ungodly. Again, together. Ungodly. You know what you are? You're ungodly. What's that mean? That means you're godless. That means you and your base state are anti-God. Just like I am. There must be an admission of guilt that you are a sinner, that you are ungodly. Look down at verse 8. But God commendeth or proved his love toward us in that while we were yet, that next word out loud together, sinners. Again, together, sinners. Now, it, uh, it might hurt the snowflake Gen X or Gen Y, Gen Z crowd for me to say this, but you're a sinner. Do you need a safe space to run to? You're a sinner, just like me. Before you can be justified, you must be willing to enter a guilty plea. You cannot be justified until you enter a guilty plea. Um, if you plead not guilty at the accusation of of being a sinner, if you plead not guilty, then you can't be justified. In fact, 
the case is going to move forward and the prosecuting attorney, Satan, he's going to begin to present the evidence because trust me, he knows all about your sin. Because he led you into most of it. How are you justified? There must be an admission of guilt. Next, there must be an acceptance of punishment. An acceptance of punishment. Look down at verse 18 of Romans 5. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment, came upon all men to condemnation. Alright, so you're in court. God is the judge. You're on trial. You're there. Prosecuting attorney says, Judge, I'm here today to make a case that, put your name in the blank, is guilty of transgressing against you. You look at the judge and you say, guilty as charged. Now the courtroom clears. It's you and the judge. It's time for the sentencing. He's going to now offer, tell you what your sentencing is for breaking the law. For sinning against him. God, the holy judge who is sinless, looks down at you and he says... He calls your name. He says, Richard, the wages, the payment, the penalty, the sentencing for your sin is death. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. About that time, the angels are going to come and get you. Drag you to the edge of the portal of heaven and cast you into hell. My friend, before you can be justified, you must first plead guilty. You must first, or you must secondly, accept the punishment for your sin, and that's hell. You say, but that's overboard. That's an over-the-top punishment. I mean, that's like giving uh, uh, the death sentence to someone who has committed a misdemeanor. How could God do that? And I'm saying to you today that if your attitude is that you don't deserve hell because your sin has not been that offensive, then you don't understand how offensive your sin is before holy God. You see, the punishment fits the crime. I stood on the porch of a of a, uh, a row home in, uh, outside of Baltimore and I witnessed to this gentleman and I explained to him the gospel and I got to the place where he was going to pray the sinner's prayer and uh, in the sinner's prayer I had him say that I deserve hell and he paused. And so I backed up and said it again. And he broke up the prayer. He said, I can't say that. I don't think that I deserve to go to hell just because I'm a sinner. You know what I did? I stopped the prayer. I said, sir, if you cannot accept the punishment, you cannot be cleansed and forgiven of your sin. He was willing to admit he was a sinner, but he was not willing to accept the punishment. Before you can be justified, you must accept the punishment. The third step in the process of justification is the atonement of sin. The atonement of sin. Look down at Romans chapter 5 and verse number 10. It says, therefore, if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Look at verse 11. And not only so, but uh, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's your uh, uh, defense attorney, uh, but he's also going to play another role here in court in a minute. By whom we have now received the atonement. What does that word atonement mean? It means to be 
cleansed. It means to have your sins acquitted. It means to be uh, uh, forgiven, to have the sentencing dismissed, the case dismissed. I want you to picture this with me. You're in court and you've pleaded guilty and you, you, you're standing there in front of the judge. It's just you and the judge. And, 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 and God looks down at you and He calls your name and He says, the wages, the price, the penalty, uh, uh, the sentencing for your sin, for the, the, the crimes against me that you've committed is death in hell. You drop your head, you begin to weep as you realize you're going to have to spend eternity separated from God in hell. The angels are on their way over to place handcuffs around you and and, and to tie up your legs and to carry you kicking and screaming over to the edge of heaven and to throw you into eternal death in hell. And about that time, the back door of the courtroom is kicked open and the son of the judge comes walking in and he says, wait, hold up everything. Don't throw him into hell. I'll go through hell for him. I'll die in his place. You see, Judge, I'm sinless. I've never done wrong. I'm perfect. I'm without sin. And I will take his crimes into my person and I will suffer in his place. That is the story of the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus come? But God, verse 8 of Romans 5, commendeth. He proved that He loved us in that while we were yet sinners, in our sinful condition, Christ died for us. He suffered your death sentence for you. Now again, that has already been done. You must first plead guilty. You must second accept the punishment. You must three believe that He did that on the cross. What is the last step of justification? Is it enough that Jesus died for the sins of the world? It isn't. You see, Jesus died for everybody. He became every sin that's ever been committed. He, he suffered the death sentence of every single human being alive today that's ever lived and will live. But not all of those people are going to go to heaven. And the question is, well, why not? If he died so everybody could go, why isn't everybody going to go? And we find that answer in the last sub-point here, and that is, The fourth step in the process of justification, making peace with God, is that you are adopted by faith. You are adopted by faith. Look down at verse 24 of Romans 4, where we began this morning. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed or laid on our record, if we believe... Here's, the, here's, here's how you become forgiven of your sins. Here's how you become justified in God's court. If we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. If we believe on Him uh, uh, who was delivered, speaking of Jesus, for our offenses, for our crimes, for our sins, and was raised again for our justification. You see, Jesus carried your sins away in His death. But he arose from the dead and he gained the right to dismiss your case in court. You see, to become justified in God's court, to become forgiven, for God to justly look at your crimes and dismiss the case, somebody had to pay the price. You must accept that by faith that that happened. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him, accepted that sacrifice, allowed Jesus to be the substitute on the cross. Uh, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Not only is the judge willing to dismiss your case, He's willing to adopt you into His family. 
Boy, I can't think of a better setup. The, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of all creation, the, the perfect, holy God who is sinless, who, who is a God of wrath toward our sin, but a God of love who wants to separate the sin from the sinner in His eternal account, wants to not only uh, forgive you of your sins, He wants to adopt you into His family. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse number 16 with me. There, Romans chapter 8, verse number 16. This is beautiful here. It says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If you have been justified by faith, then you know that you're the child of God. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. And there's a whole lot more there than we'll get to this morning. But what I'm trying to draw out of this is that not only are you adopted into the family, you are made a joint heir. You're made royalty in Christ. How can God, a perfect judge, look at you uh, uh, condemned and uh, forgive you, acquit you, uh, uh, atone you, dismiss your case, and allow you, uh, uh, allow you justly to enter into heaven? It's because someone has suffered in your place. This morning, I would plead with you, just like Job did not do, do not trust in your works. Do not justify yourself. Allow Christ to just, justify you. Uh, uh, just like Abraham was justified by faith, believing that one day Jesus would come, you look back the cross and you believe by faith that Jesus did come and you trust in him and you be saved. Letter B, notice the feeling. The feeling. We look at letter A, the fact. Letter B, we look at the feeling. We have peace with God. Look back at verse number one of Romans five. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, I was saved as a small boy. I was four years old. I was sitting on the front row of a church, April 8th, 1988. My uh, 30th uh, 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 birthday of salvation is coming up this year. I'm psyched about it. I'm more excited about that than turning 34 this year. Uh, 34 means nothing. 30 years of being a Christian, that is wow. I'm psyched about it. But can I tell you something? I don't really, I remember life where I was saved barely. But I really don't remember having made my peace with God. I, I remember the event but I don't remember, there wasn't, here's what I'm getting at, there wasn't a large contrast of a life of deep sin. I mean, I was addicted to the bottle, the milk bottle, right? My bad TV habits were probably Disney and Nickelodeon. I mean, come on, how bad was it? Um, uh, but my wife was saved as a 20-year-old adult woman. How many of you here were saved either in your late teens or beyond that? Would you raise your hand? Then you know what it's like to make your peace with God, don't you? You know what it's like to wake up every day and have that uncertainty that, why am I even here? What am I living my life for? How, what's going to happen to me when I die? Then you make your peace with God and you find out, oh, my eternality is settled. I don't have to worry about that. But Christian, let me say this to you. While your eternality has been settled with God, if you choose to live in sin after you're saved, then there is not a peaceful relationship between you and your heavenly Father. If you want to live, if you want to live with that peace in your heart that you and God are good, then you must choose to confess your sins regularly and make that peace with God. I'm talking about a feeling of peace. Some of you today are listening to this sermon, whether it's online, uh, on YouTube, or uh, you're uh, here in the service this morning, and you don't know what it's like to have that peace with God. And I'm telling you that you're not saved by a feeling. Uh, there doesn't need to be an emotional experience in order to be justified. But after you have been justified, and after that you have put your faith and trust in Christ, there is this uh, realization that I am 
am no longer hell-bound. I'm now heaven-bound. And there is a peace that you can just sleep with a lot better at night. Number five, and lastly, let's look at the parallels of two kingdoms. I'll move quickly through this. Romans 5, we find several words or terms repeated for sake of emphasis. Now, this is really good. I, I'm not going to take credit for this. All right? I got this out of a commentary, but it's really, really rich. And so, um, take note of this. The word one, the little word one, O-N-E, one, is used 13 times in Romans 5. Is that up there on the screen? Oh, there it is. Good job. All right, some form of the word reign, reign is used five times in the chapter. And then the term much more, much more is used five times. One, 13 times. Reign, some, some version of it, some form of it, five times. And then the term much more is used five times. Now, this chapter is a contrast of the kingdom of Adam and the kingdom of Christ. That's what this chapter is. Um, one kingdom reigns with much more, and the other kingdom reigns with much less. One kingdom reigns with much more, the other kingdom reigns with much less. The truth is, we are all born in Adam's kingdom. That's why you sin, because you're born in Adam's kingdom. We are part of his race. We are born under the sin curse. We are born condemned before God. You must make a choice to leave Adam's kingdom and join Christ's kingdom. You must make a conscious choice to do that. Now let me show you how Christ is a picture of Adam. Let me show you how that Christ fixed that which Adam destroyed. All right, Up on the screen I'm going to give you several contrasts here between Adam and Christ. Adam was from the earth. Adam was from the earth. Christ is from heaven. Adam was tested in a garden. Adam was tested in a garden. Uh, Jesus Christ was tempted in the wilderness. Adam, in the garden, he was surrounded by beauty and love. On the cross, Jesus was surrounded by hatred and ugliness. Well, this is really neat here. Notice this. The Old Testament contains the generations of Adam. While the New Testament, Matthew 1, contains the generations of Christ. The Old Testament... Anybody know what the last word in the Old Testament is? It's the word curse. Malachi 4.6, the Old Testament ends with a curse. Why? Because we're talking about Adam's generations. The New Testament, this is so awesome, the New Testament ends with no more curse in Revelation 22.3. You're born into Adam's kingdom. You must make a conscious choice. By faith that Jesus died for you. You must accept the sacrifice of your Savior. You must ask God, the judge, to acquit your crimes, to dismiss the case because of His sacrifice for you. You must believe that He died for you. I finish with this story. In England, there was a little homeless boy, just an eight or nine-year-old little boy who lived on the street Life had beaten him down. His parents had both died tragically, and he was on his own. This was back in the day where the kings and queens of England ruled. The little boy's face was covered in soot. He would go day after day looking for his next meal out of the dumpster and, 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 and figuring out what cardboard box he was going to sleep in the next night. He was in peril. 
He was in pain, both emotionally and physically. He spent many nights shivering in the cold, outside of a desired atmosphere and a desired home. Each day, this little boy would walk up to the palace where the king lived. He'd look up at the palace and he'd think to himself, I would love to go into the palace and talk to the king and ask him if he would give me a home where I could live. And each day he would walk up to the front of the palace and there were armed guards there in red coats and tall black hats with guns. And uh, they, they wouldn't talk to him, but they would deny him access into the palace. And each day he would turn around and leave brokenhearted, wanting to get to the king. After days and days and weeks and weeks of this, he walked up to the guard and he tried to get in and the guards would not let him in. And finally they shooed him away and as he's walking away from the palace, tears are uh, uh, trickling down his face. A man, well dressed, walks up to him and he grabs the little boy's chin and he tips it up and he takes his other hand. He begins to wipe the tears away from the boy's face and he says, what can I do for you, young man? What's the problem? And the little boy says, I just want to go in to the throne room of the king and I have a request for him. That man said, give me your hand. And he took the hand of that tall, sharp, handsome young man and right past the guards he went. In through the palace doors he went and big open uh, hallways and uh, big fancy trimmings and uh, decoration and paintings and artwork everywhere. His mouth is just gaped open at the beauty of the palace through a large entrance. He walked into the throne room and he looks up at the king sitting on his throne. He had been given access to the palace. He looks up at the man and he says, Who are you? The man says, I am the son of the king. Because of me, you've now granted, been given access to this palace. Now what is it that you would like to request to the king? And the king said, young man, speak up. What would you like? He said, I am homeless. My parents are dead. I just want a home to live in. The king smiled. He looked down at the little boy and he said, how would you like to live here? How would you like to be my son? The little boy broke down and cried. The Paperwork was done and that young man became the son of the king. My friend, we are homeless. We are without hope because of sin. Sin has destroyed all of the good of God's creation. God wants to give you that access. You cannot get into the palace on your own. But the son of the king Jesus, if you'll take him by the hand and you'll trust him, he'll walk past you. He'll walk you past the armed guards. He'll give you access in to the presence of God. And through your request, by trusting the Son of the King, Jesus Christ, you will not only be given access, you'll be given acceptance into the family of God. How about today, my friend? Will you trust Him? Will you only trust Him? You can't justify yourself. Job couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. You can't either. But you can be justified to the God of the earth in His courtroom if by faith you will accept what the Son of the King has done for you. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. How about it today? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know for certain there was a time in your life where you called out on the Lord and by faith you believed in Jesus? Do you know that? Do you know that? If not, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that here in a moment right where you're sitting. How many of you here say, Pastor Lejeune, I remember a day and time in my life 
where I took the hand of the prince. I took the hand of the Son of God and I trusted Him to get me into heaven, to give me the gift of eternal life. Here is my hand in testimony. That's, that's you as you slip up your hand. Don't be shy about that. Don't be, don't be um, bashful about that. Is there one here today who says, Pastor I don't know that I've done that. If you've not done that, I'd like to help you to do that right now. Right where you're sitting. Would you look over at the man who's burst in the back of the courtroom, who's already died for you? Will you believe in him? Will you set aside your tainted good works, your attempt to keep the law? Will you set that aside and will you believe? Right there where you're sitting, just pray this prayer under your breath. By faith, mean it with your heart. Call on the name of the Lord. Allow Him to justify you, to acquit you, to dismiss your case. Give you access and acceptance into heaven. Just pray this prayer. Say, Dear Lord Jesus. Under your breath, right where you're at. Dear Lord Jesus. I know that I'm a sinner. I plead guilty to the charges. I accept the punishment of my sin in hell. And I believe you died to atone my sins. God, would you please acquit me? Would you please dismiss my case? Would you please give me access and acceptance into the throne room of heaven? Save my soul. If you just pray that prayer, understanding what you were doing for the first time, you prayed that prayer and you meant it with all your heart, then my friend, you've been justified by your faith, just like Abraham was. And I would like to rejoice with you. If you're here today and you made that decision, would you just slip up your hand so I could rejoice with you? Is there one? Is there one? How many here today say, Pastor, I have made my eternal peace with God, but I can look at some things in my life Maybe it shouldn't be there, and it is messing up my, my father-son, father-daughter relationship. And my peace with God is not what it ought to be from that aspect. Pastor, please pray for me that I'll get that right. If that's you, just slip up your hand. Lord, I ask today that you'd help us. Help us, Lord, to confess those sins, to, to keep a clear account with you. Help us, Lord, with these things. I pray there's one here today that has not yet made their peace with you eternally. They'll do that before they leave. In Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand to our feet. The altar's open. How about it today, Christian? Will you come and tell God that you want to have a clear account with Him? If you're here today and you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, we have men and women in this church who'd love to show you from God's Word how you can be, make that peace. Love to sit here on the front row with you and help you with that. Others have already come. Will you join them? Will you allow us to tell you, show you how you can make that peace? If you have questions, we'd love to answer those. If you're here today and you've been saved but not yet been baptized, our baptismal waters are ready. We'd love to help you to follow the Lord in that decision. If you've been saved and baptized, but you've not yet joined our church. We'd love to help you with that decision as well. But let's make decisions for Christ at our pew, at the altar, as the piano plays.